Our goal that sent me to sleep is to help the world get a good night's rest. Everyone deserves that. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading Book 3, Chapters 1 and 2 of The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter One The House by the Shore Months had passed away since Richard Shelton made his escape from the hands of his guardian. These months had been eventful for England. The party of Lancaster, which was then in the very article of death, had once more raised its head. The Yorkists defeated and dispersed, their leader butchered on the field, it seemed, for a very brief season in the winter following upon the events already recorded as if the House of Lancaster had finally triumphed over its foes. The small town of Shoreby on the Till was full of Lancastrian nobles of the neighbourhood. Earl Risingham was there, with three hundred men-at-arms, Lord Shoreby with two hundred Sir Daniel himself, high in favour and once more growing rich on confiscations, lay in a house of his own on the main street with three score men. The world had changed indeed. It was a black, bitter, cold evening in the first week of January with a hard frost, a high wind, and every likelihood of snow before the morning. In an obscure alehouse in a by-street near the harbour, three or four men sat drinking ale and eating a hasty mess of eggs. They were all likely lusty, Weather-beaten fellows, hard of hand, bold of eye, and though they wore plain tabards like country ploughmen, even a drunken soldier might have looked twice before he sought to quarrel with such company. A little apart before the huge fire 
sat a younger man, almost a boy, dressed in much the same fashion, though it was easy to see by his looks that he was born better, and might have worn a sword at the time suited. Nay, said one of the men at the table, I like it not. Ill will come of it. This is no place for jolly fellows. A jolly fellow loveth open country, good cover, and scarce foes. But here we are shut in a town, girt about with enemies, and, for the bull's eye of misfortune, See if it snow not ere the morning. Tis for Master Shelton there, said another, nodding his head towards the lad before the fire. I will do much for Master Shelton, returned the first, but to come to the gallows for any man. Nay, brothers, not that. The door of the inn opened, and another man entered hastily and approached the youth before the fire. Master Shelton, he said, Sir Daniel goeth forth with a pair of links and four archers. Dick, for this was our young friend, rose instantly to his feet. Lawless, he said, ye will take John Capper's watch. Green sheave, follow with me. Capper, lead forward. We will follow him this time, and he go to York. The next moment, they were outside in the dark street, and Capper the man who had just come, pointed to where two torches flared in the wind at a little distance. The town was already sound asleep. No one moved upon the streets, and there was nothing easier than to follow the party without observation. The two link-bearers went first, Next followed a single man, whose long cloak blew about him in the wind, and the rear was brought up by the four archers, each with his bow upon his arm. They moved at a brisk walk, treading the intricate lanes and drawing nearer to the shore. He hath gone each night in this direction, asked Dick in a whisper. This is the third night running, Master Shelton, returned Capper. And still, at the same hour, and with the same small following, as though his end were secret. Sir Daniel and his six men were now come to the outskirts of the country. 
Shoreby was an open town, and though the Lancastrian lords who lay there kept a strong guard on the main roads, it was still possible to enter or depart unseen by any of the lesser streets or across the open country. The lane which Sir Daniel had been following came to an abrupt end. Before him there was a stretch of rough down, and the noise of sea surf was audible upon one hand. There were no guards in the neighborhood, nor any light in that quarter of the town. Dick and his two outlaws drew a little closer to the object of their chase, and presently, as they came forth from between the houses and could see a little farther upon each hand, they were aware of another torch drawing near from another direction. Hey, said Dick, I smell treason. Meanwhile, Sir Dick had come to a full halt. The torches were struck into the sand, and the men lay down, as if to await the arrival of the other party. This drew near at a good rate. It consisted of four men only, a pair of archers, a varlet with a link, and a coated gentleman walking in their midst. Is it you, my lord? cried Sir Daniel. It is I indeed, and if ever true knight gave proof I am that man, replied the leader of the second troop. For who would not rather face giants, sorcerers, or pagans than this pinching cold? My lord, returned Sir Daniel, beauty will be the more beholden midst out it not. But shall we forth, for the sooner ye have seen my merchandise, the sooner shall we both get home. But why keep her here, good night? inquired the other. And she be so young, and so fair, and so wealthy. Why do ye not bring her forth among her mates? Ye would soon make her a good marriage, and no need to freeze your fingers and risk arrow shots by going abroad at such untimely seasons in the dark. I have told you, my lord, replied Sir Daniel, the reason thereof concerneth me only. Neither do I propose to explain it further. Suffice it that if ye be weary of your old gossip, Daniel Brackley, publish it abroad that ye are to wed Joanna Sedley, 
and I give you my word, ye will be quit of him right soon. Ye will find him with an arrow in his back. Meantime, the two gentlemen were walking briskly forward over the down, the three torches going before them, stooping against the wind and scattering clouds of smoke and tufts of flame, and the weir brought up by six archers. Close upon the heels of these, Dick followed. He had, of course, heard no word of this conversation, but he had recognized in the second of the speakers old Lord Shoreby himself, a man of an infamous reputation, whom even Sir Daniel affected, in public, to condemn. Presently they came close down upon the beach. The air smelt salt, the noise of the surf increased, and here, in a large walled garden, there stood a small house of two stories, with stables and other offices. The foremost torch-bearer unlocked a door in the wall, and after the whole party had passed into the garden, again closed and locked it on the other side. Dick and his men were thus excluded from any further following, unless they should scale the wall and thus put their necks in a trap. They sat down in a tuft of firs and waited. The red glow of the torches moved up and down and to and fro within the enclosure, as if the link-bearers steadily patrolled the garden. Twenty minutes passed, and then the whole party issued forth again upon the down, and Sir Daniel and the Baron, after an elaborate salutation, separated and turned severally homeward, each with his own following of men and lights. As soon as the sound of their steps had been swallowed by the wind, Dick got to his feet as briskly as he was able, for he was stiff and aching with the cold. Kappa, ye will give me a backup, he said. They advanced, all three, to the wall. Kappa stooped, and Dick, getting upon his shoulders, clambered onto the copestone. Now, Greensheave, whispered Dick, follow me up here, lie flat upon your face, that ye may be the less seen, and be ever ready to give me a hand if I fall foully on the other side. And so saying, he dropped into the garden. 
It was all pitch dark. There was no light in the house. The wind whistled shrill among the poor shrubs. The surf beat upon the beach. There was no other sound. Cautiously, Dick footed it forth, stumbling among the bushes and groping with his hands, and presently the crisp noise of gravel underfoot told him that he had struck upon the alley. Here he paused, and taking his crossbow from where he kept it concealed under his long tabard, he prepared it for instant action, and went forth once more with great resolution and assurance. The path led him straight to the group of buildings. All seemed to be sorely dilapidated. The windows of the house were secured by crazy shutters. The stables were open and empty. There was no hay in the hayloft, nor corn in the corn box. Anyone would have supposed the place to be deserted. But Dick had good reason to think otherwise. He continued his inspection, visiting the offices, trying all of the windows. At length he came round to the seaside of the house, and there, sure enough, there burned a pale light in one of the upper windows. He stepped back a little way till he thought he could see the movement of a shadow on the wall of the apartment. Then he remembered that, in the stable, his groping hand had rested for a moment on a ladder, and he returned with all dispatch to bring it. The ladder was very short, but yet... By standing on the topmost round, he could bring his hand as high as the iron bars of the window, and seizing these, he raised his body by main force until his eyes commanded the interior of the room. Two persons were within. The first he readily knew to be Dame Hatch, The second, a tall and beautiful and grave young lady in a long, embroidered dress. Could that be Joanna Sedley, his old wood companion, Jack, whom he had thought to punish with a belt? He dropped back again to the top round of the ladder in a kind of amazement. He had never thought of his sweetheart as of so superior a being, and he was instantly taken with a feeling of diffidence. But he had little opportunity for thought. A low, hissed, sounded from close by, and he hastened to descend the ladder. 
Who goes? He whispered. Green sheave, came the reply in tones similarly guarded. What want ye? asked Dick. The house is watched, Master Shelton, returned the outlaw. We are not alone to watch it, for even as I lay on my belly on the wall, I saw men prowling in the dark and heard them whistle softly to one another. By my sooth, said Dick, but this is passing strange. Were they not men of Sir Daniel's? Nay, sir, that they were not, returned Greensheave, for if I have eyes in my head, every man jack of them weareth me a white badge in his bonnet, something checkered with dark. White, checkered with dark, repeated Dick. Faith, tis a badge I know not. It is none of this country's badges. Well, and that be so, let us slip as quietly forth from this garden as we may, for here we are in an evil posture for defence. Beyond all question, there are men of Sir Daniel's in that house, and to be taken between two shots is a beggarman's position. Take me this ladder, I must leave it where I found it. They returned the ladder to the stable, and groping their way to the place where they had entered Kappa had taken Green Sheave's position on the cope, and now he leaned down his hand, and, first one and then the other, pulled them up. Cautiously and silently, they dropped again upon the other side, nor did they dare to speak until they had returned to their old ambush in the gauze. Now, John Capper, said Dick, back with you to Shoreby, even as for your life. Bring me instantly what men ye can collect. Here shall be the rendezvous, or if the men be scattered and the day be near at hand before they muster, let the place be something farther back, and by the entering in of the town. Green Sheave and I lie here to watch. Speed ye, John Capper, and the saints aid you to dispatch. And now, Green Sheave, he continued, as soon as Capper had departed, let Thou and I go round about the garden in a wide circuit. I would fain see whether thine eyes betrayed thee. Keeping well outwards from the wall, and profiting by every height and hollow, they passed about two sides, beholding nothing. 
On the third side, the garden wall was built close upon the beach, and to preserve the distance necessary to their purpose, they had to go some way down upon the sands. Although the tide was still pretty far out, the surf was so high and the sands so flat that at each breaker a great sheet of froth and water came careering over the expanse, and Dick and Greensheave made this part of their inspection, wading now to the ankles and now as deep as to the knees in the salt and icy waters of the German Ocean. Suddenly, against the comparative witness of the garden wall, the figure of a man was seen, like a faint Chinese shadow, violently signalling with both arms. As he dropped again to the earth, another arose a little farther on, and repeated the same performance. And so, like a silent watchword, these gesticulations made the round of the beleaguered garden. They keep good watch, Dick whispered. Let us back to land, good master, answered Greensheave. We stand here too open, for, look ye, when the seas break heavy, and wiped out there behind us, they shall see us plainly against the foam. Ye speak sooth, returned Dick. Ashore with us, right speedily. Chapter 2 A Skirmish in the Dark Thoroughly drenched and chilled, the two adventurers returned to their position in the gauze. I pray heaven that Kappa make good speed, said Dick. I vow a candle to St. Mary of Shoreby if he come before the hour. Ya in a hurry, Master Dick, asked Greensheave. I, good fellow, answered Dick, for in that house lieth my lady, whom I love, and who should these be that lie about her secretly by night, and friends for sure. Well, returned Greensheave, at John come speedily, we shall give a good account of them, they are not two scores at the outside. I judge so by the spacing of their sentries, and, taken where they are, lying so widely, one score would scatter them like sparrows. And yet, Master Dick, and she be in Sir Daniel's power already, it will little hurt that she should change into another's. Who should these be? 
I do suspect the Lord of Shoreby, Dick replied. When came they? They began to come, Master Dick, said Greensheave, about the time ye crossed the wall. I had not lain there the space of a minute ere I marked the first of the knaves crawling round the corner. The last light had been already extinguished in the little house when they were wading in the wash of the breakers, and it was impossible to predict at what moment the lurking men about the garden wall might take their onslaught. Of two evils, Dick preferred the least. He preferred that Joanna should remain under the guardianship of Sir Daniel rather than pass into the clutches of Lord Shoreby, and his mind was made up. If the house should be assaulted, to come at once to the relief of the besieged. But the time passed, and still there was no movement. From quarter of an hour to quarter of an hour, the same signal passed about the garden wall, as if the leader desired to ensure himself of the vigilance of his scattered followers. But in every other particular, the neighborhood of the little house lay undisturbed. Presently, Dick's reinforcements began to arrive. The night was not yet old before nearly a score of men crouched beside him in the gauze. Separating these into two bodies, he took the command of the smaller himself and entrusted the larger to the leadership of Greensheave. Now, Kit, said he to this last, take me your men to the near angle of the garden wall upon the beach. Post them strongly, and wait till that ye hear me falling on upon the other side. It is those upon the seafront that I would fain make certain of, for there will be the leader. The rest will run, even let them. And now, lads, let no man draw an arrow. Ye will but hurt friends. Take to the steel, and keep to the steel. And if we have the uppermost, I promise every man of you a gold noble when I come to mine estate. Out of the odd collection of broken men, thieves, murderers, and ruined peasantry, whom Duckworth had gathered together to serve the purposes of his revenge, some of the boldest and most experienced in war had volunteered to follow Richard Shelton. 
the service of watching Sir Daniel's movements in the town of Shoreby had from the first been irksome to their temper, and they had of late began to grumble loudly and threaten to disperse. The prospect of a sharp encounter and possible spoils restored them to good humour, and they joyfully prepared for battle. Their long tabards thrown aside, they appeared, some in plain green jerkins, and some in stout leather jacks. Under their hoods, many wore bonnets, strengthened by iron plates, and, for offensive armour, swords, daggers, a few stout boar spears, and a dozen of bright bills, put them in a posture to engage even regular feudal troops. The bows, quivers, and tabards were concealed among the gauze, and the two bands set resolutely forward. Dick, when he had reached the other side of the house, posted his six men in a line, about twenty yards from the garden wall, and took position himself a few paces in front. Then they all shouted with one voice, and closed upon the enemy. These, lying widely scattered, stiff with cold, and taken at unawares, sprang stupidly to their feet and stood undecided. Before they had time to get their courage about them, or even to form an idea of the number and metal of their assailants, a similar shout of onslaught sounded in the ears from the far side of the enclosure. Thereupon, they gave themselves up for lost and ran. In this way, the two small troops of men of the Black Arrow closed upon the seafront of the garden wall and took a part of the strangers, as it were, between two fires, while the whole of the remainder ran for their lives in different directions, and were soon scattered in the darkness. For all that, the fight was but beginning. Dick's outlaws, although they had the advantage of surprise, were still considerably outnumbered by the men they had surrounded. The tide had flowed, in the meanwhile, the beach was narrowed to a strip, and on this wet field, between the surf and the garden wall, there began, in the darkness, a doubtful, furious, and deadly contest. The strangers were well armed, they fell in silence upon their assailants. 
and the affray became a series of single combats. Dick, who had come first into the melee, was engaged by three. The first he cut down at the first blow, but the other two coming upon him hotly, he was fain to give round before their onset. One of these two was a huge fellow, almost a giant for stature, and armed with a two-handed sword which he brandished like a switch. Against this opponent, with his reach of arm at the length and weight of his weapon, Dick and his bill were quite defenceless and had the other continued to join vigorously in the attack, the lad must have undubitably fallen. This second man, however, less in stature and slower in his movements, paused for a moment to peer about him in the darkness, and to give ear to the sounds of the battle. The giant still pursued his advantage, and still Dick fled before him, spying for his chance. Then the huge blade flashed and descended, and the lad, leaping on one side and running in, slashed sideways and upwards with his bill. A roar of agony responded and, before the wounded man could raise his formidable weapon, Dick, twice repeating his blow, had brought him to the ground. The next moment he was engaged, upon more equal terms, with his second pursuer. Here there was no great difference in size, and though the man fighting with sword and dagger against a bill, and being wary and quick of fence, had a certain superiority of arms. Dick more than made up by his greater agility on foot. Neither at first gained any obvious advantage, but the older man was still sensibly profiting from the ardour of the younger to lead him where he would, and presently Dick found that they had crossed the whole width of the beach and were now fighting above the knees in the spume and bubble of the breakers. Here his own superior activity was rendered useless. He found himself more or less at the discretion of his foe, yet a little, and he had his back turned upon his own men, and saw that this adroit and skilful adversary was bent upon drawing him further and further away. Dick ground his teeth. He determined to decide the combat instantly and when the wash of the next wave had ebbed 
soaked and left them dry, he rushed in, caught a blow upon his bill, and leaped right at the throat of his opponent. The man went down backwards, with Dick still upon the top of him, and the next wave, speedily succeeding to the last, buried him below a rush of water. While he was still submerged, Dick forced his dagger from his grasp and rose to his feet victorious. Yield ye, he said, I give you life. I yield me, said the other, getting to his knees. Ye fight like a young man, ignorantly and foolhardily, but by the array of the saints ye fight bravely. Dick turned to the beach. The combat was still raging doubtfully in the night, over the hoarse roar of the breaker's steel clanging upon steel, and cries of pain and the shout of battle resounded. Lead me to your captain, youth, said the conquered knight. It is fit this butchery should cease. Sir, replied Dick, so far as these brave fellows have a captain, the poor gentleman who here addresses you is he. Call off your dogs then and I will bid my villains hold, returned the other. There was something noble both in the voice and manner of his late opponent, and Dick instantly dismissed all fears of treachery. Lay down your arms, men, cried the stranger knight. I have yielded me upon promise of life. The tone of the stranger was one of absolute command, and almost instantly the din and confusion of the melee ceased. Lawless, cried Dick, are ye safe? I, cried Lawless, safe and hearty. Light me the lantern, said Dick. Is not Sir Daniel here? inquired the knight. Sir Daniel? echoed Dick. Now by the road, I pray not. It would go ill with me if he were. Ill with you, fair sir, inquired the other. Nay, then, if ye be not of Sir Daniel's party... I profess I comprehend no longer. Wherefore, then, fell ye upon mine ambush? In what quarrel, my young and very fiery friend? To what earthly purpose? And, to make a clear end of questioning, to what good gentleman have I surrendered? But before Dick could answer, a voice spoke in the dark 
darkness from close by. Dick could see the speaker's black and white badge and the respectful salute which he addressed to his superior. My lord, said he, if these gentlemen be unfriends to Sir Daniel, it is pity indeed. We should have been at blows with them, but it were tenfold greater that either they or we should linger here. The watchers in the house, unless they be all dead or deaf, have heard our hammering this quarter hour agone. Instantly they will have signalled to the town, and unless we be the livelier in our departure, we are like to be taken, both of us, by a fresh foe. Hawksley is in the right, added the lord. How please ye, sir, whither shall we march? Nay, my lord, said Dick, go where ye will for me. I do begin to suspect we have some ground of friendship, and if, indeed, I began our acquaintance somewhat ruggedly, I would not churlishly continue. Let us then separate, my lord. You lay your right hand in mine, and at the hour and place that ye shall name, let us encounter and agree. You're too trustful, boy, said the other, but this time your trust is not misplaced. I will meet you at the point of day at Sir Bridges' cross. Come, lads, follow. The stranger disappeared from the scene with a rapidity that seemed suspicious, and while the outlaws fell to the congenial task of rifling the dead bodies, Dick made once more the circuit of the garden wall to examine the front of the house. In a little upper loophole of the roof, he beheld a light set, and as it would certainly be visible in town from the back windows of Sir Daniel's mansion, he doubted not that this was the signal feared by Hawksley and that ere long the lances of the Knight of Tunstall would arrive upon the scene. He put his ear to the ground, and it seemed to him as if he heard a jarring and hollow noise from townward. Back to the beach he went, hurrying, but the work was already done. The last body was disarmed and stripped to the skin, and four fellows were already wading seaward to commit it to the mercies of the deep. A few minutes later, when there debauched out of the nearest lanes of Shoreby some two score horsemen, hastily arrayed 
and moving at the gallop of their steeds. The neighborhood of the house beside the sea was entirely silent and deserted. Meanwhile, Dick and his men had returned to the alehouse of the goat and bagpipes to snatch some hours of sleep before the morning tryst. <laughs>